Well, good morning. And I think it's still appropriate to say Merry Christmas. Christmas was a couple days ago, but it's still Christmas. I mean, Christmas is officially over, but, or maybe it's technically over, but not officially over, or vice versa. I don't know. In my house, it won't end for another month or so, and it's been, it's exist, it's been going on for several months now, but um, well, that's okay. Uh, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. <clears throat> and we're talking this morning about, um, well, it's up on the screen, that's what we're talking about, responding to Christmas. Um, we've, the last four, the last four Sundays, we've, our Advent services, we've dealt with, we've, we've kind of got at the idea of Christmas from one direction or another. Um, I think uh, Craig Doctor talked a little bit about Jesus' ministry from Luke 4. Um, Dr. Dan Doriani went through the statements why, why Jesus came. There are about a half a dozen statements where Jesus himself identifies why he came. And then, um, and then I preached um, a couple Sundays ago the meaning of Jesus' birth. And then last Sunday was um, why the incarnation. And then... Uh, on Thursday night, we had a wonderful uh, Christmas Eve service, and um, we kind of got at uh, this idea of the, the meaning of Christmas a, a little deeper. So we're kind of getting at the same question from a bunch of different angles, and so now we, we're coming to this idea of, well, what do we do with Christmas, right? So we've, we've worked through the passages of Scripture, we've worked through the theology of the Incarnation and the meaning of Jesus' birth, but... Now we're getting at, a little bit, before we move on, the implications of Christmas, the implications of Christ's birth. So turn to Luke chapter 2, and beginning in the ninth verse, I'll read from the ninth to the 20th verse. And it reads, And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thanks for for your grace, uh, for your mercy, for calling us by your love. And, um, and your grace, bringing us into this place uh, this sleepy morning after Christmas. 
Um, Lord, we do rejoice in the fact that you came into this world in the fullness of time, fulfilling the promises you had made to your people through the prophets. Lord, your word never fails. And so now, O oh God, we pray that you would speak to us through your word again this morning. Convict us and convince us of the word of God. And let us leave this place transformed, changed, different than the way we came in. Lord, we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. How did the first Christians make an impact on this world? How did a tiny band of men and women in a fringe backwater region uh, of the far-flung Roman Empire, um, how did they make an impact on their world and become a world faith within just a few generations? We could say that Christianity was built on three pillars of truth. And these three pillars, the early Christians were so confident in that as they went out from their towns and villages that it, it empowered everything they did and said. And this would be the incarnation, uh, the atonement, and the resurrection. And the response to all three of these things from Jesus' followers, the incarnation, the atonement, and the resurrection, the response is always worship and witness. These two things. And now that Christmas is over, you know, I was tempted um, to return to my series in Colossians. Um, You know, it's like, you know, Christmas is over, what do you do? You know, what do I preach on now? You know, we've just exhausted, completely exhausted everything we can about Christmas. You know, we've said everything we can possibly say, right? So, I don't know, you know, let me uh, uh, preach a, a sermon from, you know, why God destroyed the Amalekites or something, you know? Uh, <laughs> you, you can be tempted to do that. You're just done with Christmas. You don't want to talk about it anymore. But I think it's appropriate for us to explore the idea before we move on and go back to our series in Colossians and talk about other things and move on with our life and move past the Christmas season. It's appropriate for us to talk uh, about what our response should be to Christmas, all right? We've gotten our head wrapped around the idea, but, but what should our response be? And I want to spend our time this morning exploring this passage in Luke 2 and how the response of those present here in this passage is really a model for us. So um, <clears throat> the two things I talked about, worship and witness, we first want to talk about Worship. In verse 9, it says that the angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, a Savior who is Messiah, the Lord, was born for you in the city of David. The idea that God literally became a man to set the world to rights should be a source of constant awe and wonder for us. It was for them when they heard it. In fact, uh, 
It, it took years, even decades, for the early church to wrap their mind around the theological and the doctrinal implications of, of what had kind of just happened. But for us, looking back with 2,000 years of reflection and you know, counsel from the church, and you know, when I say counsel, I mean other smart people have thought about these things before us. And so for us, what the birth of Jesus Christ should do is cause us to worship. It should, it should cause and create in us a sense of awe and a sense of wonder. In Hebrews 1, it says that God, after he spoke, uh, that God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, have spoken, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he, made, he also made the world, and he is the radiance of the glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the very word of his power. This is, this is the implications of, of what the birth of Jesus means. Jesus Christ is the exact representation of God, the radiance of the glory of God, and he represents perfectly the nature of God. This is kind of a big deal. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this, is a, this is a really powerful idea that, that this son that was born is the exact representation of God. Right? Colossians, we've been moving through Colossians. Colossians said that God was pleased that the fullness of deity should dwell in Christ bodily. That means that Jesus Christ represents the fullness of God, He is God that all of the glory of the Godhead in heaven is represented in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ reveals God to the world and humanity in a way that previously had not existed before then. That's what we have. And we take it for granted because it's kind of old now. I mean, you know, 2,000 years isn't a brief period of time. And many of us have grown up in the church, and so these are just things that are kind of commonplace for us. I commented a few Sundays back about how the job of the preacher is not to make an ancient text relevant necessarily for our time. The Word of God is relevant. It's timeless. But, but it's always a challenge to take us back into the first century or back into the context and time of when the Bible was written. And so for us to glean the meaning of this, it's helpful for us to understand its impact and power. And the shepherd's and those present are filled with the awesome sense of wonder that God has kept his promises. Um, in the past, he had revealed himself with divine oracles and prophetic utterances. But Jesus reveals the Father in a way that nothing before was able to do because he is God. The Apostle John, contemplating the meaning of Christmas, uh, said that Jesus is nothing less than the Word becoming flesh. That's what Jesus is. The Word became flesh, John 1.14. And so the question for us is, is this still good news for us? Is it good news for you? Not just on Christmas, but all year long. Is this, is this still good news for, for you? It was good news for them. Is it still good news for us? Or is this just something that we do? It's just 
our tradition. We sing songs, we come to church, we, we wrap gifts, you know, we say cute sayings like Jesus is the reason for the season. You know, it's a good saying, you know, it makes sense, it's true. But is this just something we do, or is this really good news for us? Does it animate us? Does it, does it energize us? Does it empower our living, this knowledge? <clears throat> um, if you find yourself without something to worship God or for, or something to really meditate or ponder, and that's what's happening here, is the shepherds and Mary, they're pondering this idea. It, 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 it informs our worship. It, it, it fills us with a sense of joy and gratitude. That Jesus is God with us. We talked a couple Sundays ago about the word Emmanuel, right? God being imminent with us. The second way we should respond to Christmas, uh, or the second component of worship, besides pondering, is praise. In verse 13, suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to people he favors. Part of worship is not just meditating. In fact, that's a part of it, right? Uh, we're not zombies walking around. God gave us a brain and our intellectual uh, faculties for a reason, right? We comprehend these things, and it, it, it exalts our heart in a sense of worship. But, but if worship doesn't, isn't embodied in praise, ultimately doesn't lead to praise, and there's something, there's something amiss, Right? And so there's this sense of praise that, that when we're filled with worship, that we praise God, that there is a sense of gratitude and, and thanksgiving. Um, <clears throat> I love the song, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, um, born to set thy people free, from our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation Hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. That's kind of one thing we're, we've, we're really good at, at least, right, in, during the Christmas season, is the hymns embody a sense of praise. You know, the Christmas hymns are beautiful, um, and, and they, they, they're meant to kind of uh, draw us into this sense of, of praise to the Lord and focus us in on the meaning of Christmas in a really powerful way. Um, I love, my, my, own, my personal favorite is O Come Emmanuel because it embodies what I believe is the crux of Jesus' coming, which is the deliverance of his people, Israel, which also means the blessing of the entire world. But praise isn't supposed to stop um, after Christmas. My wife's good at this. She sings Christmas hymns all year long. And um, it, it, it draws us back into, in, into this idea of God coming into the world. So if all you're left with at the end of the day is, you know, wrapping paper, um, you know, and, you're, and you know, we, it exhausts us, right? The Christmas season, it exhausts us. And if all you're left with, uh, we should be refreshed by it. We should be refreshed by the Christmas season, um, but if all we're left with is kind of, you know, uh, a large credit card balance and wrapping paper, um, it's possible we've missed Christmas. We've, we've responded uh, the wrong way to it. Um, it ought to fill us with praise. It ought to cause us to worship. And ultimately, it, that ought to give us great joy. You know, joy is strength. And, 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 and it ought to give us a sense of great joy. 
So the first way we ought to respond is through worship, and that, con- that is, includes pondering and praising. But the second way we ought to respond to Christmas is with our witness, right? Worship and witness. Worship and witness. For those of you that like nutshelled ideas, there it is, all right? What is the Christian life in a nutshell? Worship and witness, okay? There you have it. Um, That one's free. But the second thing is witness. And so Christmas should, should, should affect us in a way that causes us not only to worship but to witness. In verse 15 it says, When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the feeding trough. And after seeing them, they reported, they reported the message they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Um, <clears throat> for the first century Jew... The idea that Israel's long-expected deliverer had come was incredibly good news. That phrase, good news, has been used repeatedly and so often that uh, even the the word gospel, which of course we know means good news, right? Good news, gospel, gospel means good news. It's it's become, we, we use it so frequently and we use it to describe so many different things, right? This is gospel-centered or, you know, uh, you know we, it's a noun, an adjective, a verb. You know, I mean, we, we use it in all these different ways that it's almost been kind of like divested of its meaning because it means so many different things. But uh, just to bring it back to our text this morning and the context of the first century, it literally was good news for a world that was kind of steeped in bad news, right? I mean... Uh, Caesar, as far, as far as they knew, was really the reigning king of the world. You know, even if you're an Israelite and you're holding to the scriptures the, of the Hebrew Bible and the prophets, it's hard you know, to keep your chin up, right? I mean, it'd be hard to keep your chin up. I mean, the, uh, a tax just went out from, from Caesar, and guess who's enforcing the tax? Are other Jews who are kind of, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of uh, vassals of the empire, and so your nation is under oppression. There's all of these hopes and expectations. Uh, it's just, it's kind of a dark time. Uh, your nation, which is supposed to uh, be the nation of, of the one true God, has kind of been up against the ropes for centuries. And so good news is not really something they were used to hearing. It was a lot of bad news. You know, it was kind of a dark cloud over Israel for centuries. And so this idea that the Savior, the one that was promised, who is to deliver God's people, is here. He's arrived, and that not Caesar, but he is actually the true king. That what they saw with their eyes wasn't really, it, was, it, was, it wasn't the true truth. It was true, Caesar was on the throne, but it wasn't the true truth about the cosmos and the world that this king, and we talked about that on uh, Christmas Eve, how, uh, how much the birth of Jesus defies logic and convention, right? A king born of peasants announcing a kingdom without an army, all of those things we discussed on Christmas Eve. And so this, 
this knowledge and this truth that the Savior was born, the Savior of Israel, really is good news. That Caesar isn't Savior. Like the coins said, Jesus is Savior. This child, and the angels proclaimed it, this child is the Savior. The shepherds, they responded by doing what? They told everyone. Um, Sometimes critics of the Bible... Um, they say that, uh, listen, the New Testament was written de- at the very least decades after the historical events had happened. And so, uh, and you've heard this, I know you've all heard this, uh, we've all played the game telephone, right? You know, And they said, look, just tell a secret to 10 people in a room, and by the time it gets to the 10th person, it's completely mangled. You've heard this, have you heard this argument before? And the argument basically is essentially their way of saying that the, the oral communication, the verbal communication before anything was writ, written down uh, was really the only means of communicating the message of what had really happened. And by the time it was put down on paper, that it was so mangled that the Bible really can't be trusted. And I just want uh, to say one thing to that, that um, facts get mangled depending on what you're talking about. In other words, if, if I say that, uh, uh, you know, my wife changed, the, rotated the tires on Thursday at 3 o'clock, it's not that big of a deal. So if you repeat it to 10 people in a room, it might get mangled. Uh, it might be, you know, she got a flat tire on Saturday at 2 o'clock. But if I say Jim was hit by a truck, you know Jim, right? Everybody knows Jim. And, and he's been in a coma, and the doctor said he's got three days to live, but I just visited him, and he's sitting up in his room, and he's eating, and he's watching Wheel of Fortune. That's a big deal, okay? That's a big, that's a big difference from an insignificant fact. And so the proclamation of the birth of the Savior was a big deal. This is not something that people are thinking, oh, he said the Savior's born? No, he said that uh, we're going over... Uh, uh, you know, um, Isaac's house on, on the Sabbath, you know, to have dinner. No, this is not just some common fact. This is the most earth-shattering uh, event in all of human history. And so the shepherds go out and they tell it and others tell it, and that's what we're to do. We're to go out with this proclamation of witness empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's what the Holy Spirit has been given to us for, right? Acts 1 and 8 You will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you to do what? To be my witnesses, right? In Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth. Just a quick aside, this is the uttermost part of the earth. You know, sometimes we can be kind of America-centric. It started in the Middle East, and here we are, you know, 7,000 miles away or however far we are from Israel and Palestine, and here we are talking about Jesus Christ. And that's a wonderful testimony to the witness and the power of uh, uh, the glory of spirit-empowered proclamation of the gospel that here we are 2,000 years later on the other side of the planet talking about Jesus. This is the uttermost part of the earth. And so witness is the other function, the other response for us to the gospel. We're supposed to not only be be, uh, caught up with worship, but also a sense of of powerful witness. Uh, God desires to bring, uh, to, to, to bless all nations. 
God desires to bless all nations. How do we know this? Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God tells Abraham, in you all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. Um, But God's promise to be a blessing to the world has one obstacle. The ignorance of the nations. The sinful hearts are overturned when what happens? When they hear. So here's this promise to Abraham. He wants to be a blessing to all of the nations. Christ comes as the descendant of Abraham and David, right? And, And now there's this proclamation, the impetus for us to witness and to spread this word. 1 Corinthians 1.21 says, For since uh, in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through its wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God has purposed and determined that through the witness and proclamation that Jesus Christ has come into the world, that sinners will be overturned, that their hearts will be turned towards God. That rebellion will turn into love and obedience through the proclamation of the gospel. Romans 10.14 declares, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have never heard of? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? Some of you are thinking, I'm no preacher. But listen, um, You don't have to be an evangelist to witness, okay? Yes, there are some people who are commissioned as evangelists. We send them out, and, you know, that's what they do, okay? They're gifted in calling. They're gifted and called to do that, but every one of us is is commanded to be be witnesses. In the Old Testament, um, being a witness was a serious matter. In fact, you can get in a lot of trouble, Leviticus 5 and 1, if you didn't if you didn't report the things you heard and you saw. And so there's this idea about testifying, right? The New Testament writers, they're fluent in the Old Testament, and they're thinking, hey, you know the concept from the Law of Moses about witnessing? Yeah, this, this applies here. We're to witness, we're to testify the things that we've seen, the things that we've heard to the world. <clears throat> Interestingly, the, um, the New Testament Um, the word that the New Testament uses for witness is the same word. um, It's the Greek word martus. It's where we get the word martyr. The New Testament word for witness is the same word for martyr. That should say something to us. And maybe that's why we're reluctant to be witnesses. Because the testimony of Jesus Christ can cause problems for us. God doesn't want just our worship He wants our witness too. The shepherds reported what they saw and they told everyone. And everyone who heard it was amazed. Um, I spent years working in the grocery industry. Uh, I worked in a grocery store. That's a fancy way of saying I worked in a market. Uh, (laughs) I spent years working in a market. And uh, in my early 20s, Maribel and I, we we were young in our marriage and I packed on, you know, like 40 pounds or something. It happens, all right? So you single ladies and single guys in here, it just happens. And, and I wanted to lose weight, and I started exercising, and I started drinking um, a gallon of water a day, a gallon and a half a day. That was a part of my workout regimen, and I lost like 40 pounds. 
But I'd walk around the store, and I'd you know, build the displays, and I had this gallon of water with me everywhere I went. And so whenever people looked for Jordan, they just said, well, find the water bottle, and you'll find where the area of the store he's working in. I drank so much water. I mean, uh, and part of the weight loss thing was, was the water. And people saw that I was losing weight. And they said, you know, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing? I had everybody coming up to me, all the other employees. There's like 120 employees. It's a big grocery store. And I would explain to them, but I would say, this right here, it's this water. You know, it speeds up your metabolism, and you just got to drink a lot of it. And after a while, everyone in the store had a gallon of water everywhere they went. I mean, it was just, they were, if you walked through the grocery store, if you knew what to look for, it was like, bottle of water there, you know, gallon of water there. They were, it was all over the place. You know, the service deli, the meat department, the check stands, they, everyone had a gallon of water. Everyone was just drinking a gallon of water. My conviction and excitement was, was just contagious, you know. It just was. Everyone was drinking water. I mean, we couldn't keep water on the shelves. It was crazy. And it, it would become like, it's, it just become like a, yeah, like a trend in the whole store because I was so fired up about it because it worked. I mean, you know, I had lost like 40 pounds. Um, that's exactly what happens when the gospel has infected us. When the testimony of Jesus Christ has so infected and excited and convinced us that when we proclaim and share, it, 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 it just can't help but to affect other people. You know, you can't disciple others unless you're a disciple. Matthew 28, 19, Jesus gives the great commission to disciple the nations. And who does he give that commission to? His disciples. He tells disciples, go make other disciples. And so the idea there is that for us to actually be effective witnesses, this sense of awe and wonder and worship has to be in us. And if it's not, our... I usually shut that thing off every time I come to church. First time it's happened. Um, but, if, but if we're not infected with that sense of worship and awe and wonder, our witness has no power. When the shepherds left, you know, that scene after hearing from the angels, that proclamation that Christ the Savior was born, you can just imagine how energized they were. Telling everyone, you know, angels just appeared to us telling us that the long-awaited Savior has come into the world. The shepherds reported what they heard and what they saw. But witness is not just about what we say. It's about what we live. So if I could break witness, right, the proclamation of the gospel, up into two streams, it would be the things we say with our mouth, words of truth, And then it would be the things that we live, the way we live with our life. Uh, Our lives, at the seminary we say, our lives, uh, your life is the greatest apologetic. In other words, right, the Christian church in, in in the Western world has had a credibility issue with unbelievers for a while now. And what's behind that is the things that we do don't comport often with the things that we say, right? So there's, there's, a, there's a disjunction there. there there's a, a, a fracture of, of credibility if our lives are not bearing out the essence of the gospel and testifying and witnessing to the truth of who Jesus is. If our lives don't match our words, there's no credibility. Does that make sense? 
right? I mean, we, we're, we're like that with, with other people too. We can understand that. And sometimes we beat up on non-Christians or unbelievers because we think they just want to attack Christians. But the truth is, they really want to see that the gospel has changed someone. And so when Christians behave in a way that, uh, uh, that feeds into their pessimism and their stereotypes, they just shake their head and go, see, you Christians are all the same. You are exactly what, what I thought you were. And that's not what God has called us to do. God has called us to be his witnesses in word and in deed. So these two components, worship, right, pondering uh, uh, and praise, pondering what it means that God has come into the world, letting that, that, that fact of his incarnation fill us with a sense of praise, right? That's worship. And then witness the things we say with our mouth and the way that we live with our lives. And the proper response to Christmas is not just when we're gathered, but when we're scattered also, right? It's easy to do those things. It's easy to worship. It's easy to be a good witness when you're with other people who believe just like you. The challenge, though, is what you do when you're scattered from this place, when Christians are not in church on Sunday morning. I heard one uh, preacher one time say that in, a, in the Western world, churches have become Christian ghettos. It's the only place that we can be who we really are comfortably. But in reality, God wants us you know, to live out the truth of, of the meaning of Christmas when we leave this place, taking the things that we talk about here, the things that we sing about here, into the world for his glory. Let's pray. Father, um, we fall short. We acknowledge that. Uh, we don't have an um, unrealistic picture and expectation of what we, um, what we are. Uh, we are frail, we're finite, and Lord, we often, um, uh, we often uh, disappoint and fall short of your uh, commands, and even simply to reflect the mercy and love that you've shown us. But we pray, O oh God, that Christmas would not be in vain for us, that it would not simply mean receipts, wrapping paper, exchanges, um, ugly sweaters. Lord, we pray, O oh God, that we would uh, embody this mandate to worship you, that the birth of Jesus Christ means uh, that we would truly be in a sense of awe and wonder, and that, Lord God, that we would embody the witness of this truth, that we would live in such a way that we really believe what we read, what we preach, and what we talk about, Lord God, and that we would, you would use us, Lord God, to, to grow your kingdom. You would use us to bring people to you and be a blessing to the nations, O oh God. Lord, we thank you. In your son's name, we pray. Amen.